Praise God. Have you been enjoying the um, diversity series? Okay. I want to say to you right now that God is interested in all of life. God is interested in all of life. And you see, you have different types of Christians. You have the type of Christians that have limited God to the four corners, four walls of a church building. And they kind of think that, no, you know what? The messages that are truly spiritual are when pastors teach us how to pray or when pastors teach us uh, how to read the Bible, right? But I want to tell you that all of life is spiritual because God is into all of life. And God has called us to have kingdom living in all spheres of life, whether it's in business, education, whatever sphere of influence. Are we all in agreement? All right. And the church needs to be relevant. The church needs to be relevant. So we're going to pray. Father, I ask that this message that I preach this morning will not be misunderstood, but will be understood. And I pray, Father God, that you would release your people to a greater dimension of being reformers. That, Lord, we would step into the nation and be a prophetic voice and address the issues of the day. Father, I pray that you raise up the Josephs. I pray that you raise up the Daniels. I pray that you raise up the Debras of this day. Give us revelation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God applies to all of life. God applies to all of life. I'm experiencing some feedback. Can someone just switch off these monitors here? Can just switch off these monitors, thanks. You know, Joseph is respected as a Bible character. And we admire him, don't we? How many of you like Joseph? You know, in Scripture, hardly anything negative is said about Joseph. Hardly anything negative. He's respected as a Bible character. Nothing negative, hardly anything is said about him. He was such an example of a reformer. God gave him a template that saved a region. God is raising up believers today to do the same thing. Do you know that what Joseph did, the revelation he had from God, resulted in more than one nation getting saved? I'm not talking about spiritual salvation. I'm talking about being relieved from famine. We had our situation where we saw that the Egyptians were rescued from famine, but also the children of Israel. Have a look at this. In Genesis chapter 43, verse 23 to 27, Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. Just look how practical his Christianity, well, not Christianity at that time, but how practical his relationship with God was. It says, but when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. How I many of you know that God wants to raise up reformers today where people in this nation experiencing drought, experiencing poverty, experiencing hardship, will run to us and say, you guys, you Bible-believing Christians have saved our lives today. Do you believe that? 
I'm talking about practical Christianity. Just stay with me. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. It's interesting that while the rest of the region was experiencing famine, the children of Israel, it says they acquired property there. They believed in acquiring property. They believed in title deed. Amen. And it says they were fruitful and increased in number. There's powerful revelation here. I want to speak to you this morning, and I'll continue next week, about a biblical view of land reform. A biblical view of what? A biblical view of land reform. Because you see, a lot of people are part of different political parties and will go with what the political party is saying, but never search the word of God because there's an assumption they have that God's word is relevant. Yes, they're Christians. God's word is irrelevant, I mean to say, irrelevant. They won't say that to you, but they don't think God has something to say about these types of issues. How many of you have done a personal study yourselves on the issue of land? But how many of you have spoken about it and shared your opinions and marketed your opinions to other people and bought into the various things people say concerning these things? You see, many of us do so. And the Bible talks about how each one did what was right in his own sight. That's why God brought in the time of the judges. Because at that time, what was happening was people were just doing their own thing. Each one was doing whatever was right in their own sight. And I believe that in this nation, what ends up happening is everyone thinks they know everything about everything. Have you noticed that? And we're so proud about our opinions. But God is wanting us to go back to the word of God. So I want to speak to you for the next two weeks on the subject, a biblical view of land reform. Is everyone fine with that? Right? Right now, in, um, yesterday in Boxburg, the ANC had their first inaugural meeting, debate, discussing this issue. Right? Discussing the bill that was passed, I think it was, put forward in about December last year, talking about this thing. I think our president was saying that this is the biggest debate on any political issue since 1994. How can the biggest debate on any political issue since 1994 happen and the church hasn't got a stance on it? I don't know about you, but it's time for the church to rise up and be a prophetic voice concerning the issues of the day. It's time for the church to rise up and be a prophetic voice and the Josephs rise up and the Daniels rise up and people come to us for counsel and say, can you advise us with the wisdom that God has bestowed upon you? The Bible tells us that it's with wisdom that a house is built. Now you could extend that and say it's with wisdom that a city is built. It's with wisdom that a nation is built. The Bible also tells us in the book of James that there's wisdom from above and then there's wisdom from below. I don't know about you, but if this nation is going to be built, it must be built based on the wisdom from above. It's time for believers to seek God's face and to say, God, what are you saying on these matters? 
without people in the church saying, oh, this pastor is political because he's talking about political things. So what are we supposed to talk about as pastors? Because you see, if these things are done in the wrong way, what's going to happen is, is in five years' time, the very same people who are now victims of it will be coming to church and saying, Pastor, pray for me because I'm starving. Pastor, pray for me. I'm sitting on this farm, but I don't have ways of implement. I don't have farming tools to use in the machinery. And I'm sitting on this farm and people are coming and they're stealing all the infrastructure that was there from years ago. Pastor, there's more poverty in my region than ever before. Please pray for me. And it becomes the issue for the church. Because as the church, we deal with individuals, don't we? But I'm going to know that there are political decisions being made today that are affecting individual lives. And you see, God has given us a prophetic eye to see into the future and to see what will happen if things are not done correctly. Are you hearing me this morning? So God is raising up a prophetic people. God is raising up an apostolic people with clout who will be heard by national leaders. The first thing I want to say to you is that as we saw Joseph coming up with solutions in Egypt, I believe that there are many Josephs that God is raising up in this hour. And I want to give you a rationale of this. I'm going to, the first part of my message is going to be a rationale why we need to discuss these issues. And in the second part, I'm going to begin to ask you very specific questions which I believe need to be addressed in this nation right now. The first thing I want to say is we're a blessed nation. I want to say that South Africa is a blessed nation and South Africa in terms of our geographical land, it's actually a very big nation. And I want you to know that even for our population, 55 million or so I think it is, right? There's actually lots of land. I mean, you know, there's lots of good land here, South Africa. Let me just explain. Let me put it into perspective. Let me put it into perspective. I've actually got, um, in terms of the number of square, uh, square kilometers, right? We are sitting at 1,219,000 um, square kilometers in South Africa. But you know, those numbers don't mean anything unless you compare them with other things, right? Let me give you an example. If you take the combination of these countries, Belgium, Germany, Italy, France, Holland, if you combine all those nations together, South Africa is bigger than the combination of those nations in terms of physical land size. Now do a bit of research. Go and look at those individual nations and look at what their GB GDP is in comparison to South Africa. And then ask yourself, what are we doing with the land we have? How productive are we? And when I talk about land, I'm talking about mining land also. Let me put it into perspective. South Africa is five times the size of the United Kingdom. Yet the United Kingdom has got 10 million more people than we have. UK is on about 65 million. We're on about 55. Are you hearing me? Look at the GDP of the UK. Look at the GDP of South Africa. Are you seeing where I'm going? You see, when God gives you land, he wants you to be a steward of it. The principle of stewardship. If you begin to farm land, you have a responsibility to be productive with that particular land. From 94 through to now, we all know that land reform has failed in this country. It hasn't worked. Right now, the ruling party, governing party, whatever you want to call them, they've actually started a process of actually investigating 
why some of the, the farms that were taken over, why they're lying derelict today. So it hasn't worked up until now, and now they want to do something about it, but there, there has to be some form of accountability. Are you hearing me this morning? So, so we find ourselves in a nation that is so blessed. because It's massive. I remember driving from Bloom. You know how it is when you're driving from Bloom. And you know there are people in the car who want to use the, the, the loo, the toilet. And one of the things about my kids, sometimes, you know, you would have just stopped somewhere. And then like a few minutes after having stopped somewhere, you're now moving. One of them might say, oh, dad, I need the loo. You're like, but we've just used it there. Then you're driving and you're driving quite fast. And you're like, okay, at the next stop. You know how long it takes before you get to that next engine garage or next ultra city. And you're just seeing farmland, 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 farmland. Ladies and gentlemen, there's lots of land in this country. Are you hearing me this morning? The question isn't how much land do we have. The question is what are we doing with it as stewards of the land that God has blessed us with? What are we doing with it as a nation? Some people are using it well. Some people are not using it well. Let me give you another example just to put this into perspective. Look at the nation Israel. Israel, is, is it a big nation or is it small in terms of physical size? It's small, right? Is the, is the land extremely fertile? No, it's not. So can you explain to me why is Israel known for its agriculture? It's not naturally an agricultural nation. Part of it is desert, rocky, mountains, and that kind of thing. And yet it is well known, especially for, for citrus, for its fruit. You know, that, you know that Israel produces 40 different types of fruit. And they export fruit. And they're known for that. They've done something with what they have. Let me give you another example about Israel. Israel is... The, has got the highest production per capita, per, per cow, in terms of milk in the world. In other words, each beast, each cow, produces the most amount of milk in the world. And those of you who are into dairy farming and so on, my dad does a bit of dairy farming, you'll know that's how you measure the success of a dairy farmer. It's not always how many, uh, how, you know, how many cows does he actually have. Often you look at how much is each cow producing. Israel is number one in the world. And yet as a nation... What is it like in terms of the land? Not very agricultural. Fact of the man, not very agricultural in terms of the actual soil, but they produce. Look at South Africa. We've got good land here, ladies and gentlemen. Nations like South Africa, I remember when I was in the DR Congo, I was blown away by how fertile and how rich the land was. Question is, what are we doing with it? Just, just again, let me put into perspective the size of South Africa. If you take South Africa, just go to your map. I mean, if you like geography, just take the, take the map of South Africa. I know there's Swaziland and Lesotho sort of, you know, in, in, in there, but they're not that big. But, you know, just take that, right, and place it somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere there. You'll actually see that South Africa, size of South Africa, is like Sudan and Egypt combined, and those are known as big nations. Our population is not big. The population of Germany is about 88 million. Yet it's way smaller than South Africa. Are you hearing me? France, 
way smaller than South Africa, 66 million people. So we are blessed with a wonderful nation. You see, you can get land and, and through BEE, etc., you can get a business, but it can still fail. The farming can still fail. The business can still fail if your heart is full of bitterness because there are other principles that will make us prosper. My goal this morning is to give a framework for this to be discussed. This is not an implementation plan I'm trying to give, but it's a series of questions to help us to reflect. It's also a set of guardrails to be embedded in the discourse and the strategies that this nation comes up with. I want to deal with the land question, firstly because it's very topical in South Africa today, but also it's very significant in scripture, the issue of land. I was speaking to someone yesterday and they said, oh, it's good that you'll be preaching on this because whenever I look at land in the Old Testament, sometimes we end up seeing these things as being very metaphorical. When you study the Old Testament, there were certain laws put into place and they're actually laws that help to govern a nation. Amen? Read the Old Testament and just read it with that lens to actually say, what are the principles here for how a nation can be governed? I want to encourage those of you who are working in some of these industries, some of you in agriculture, some of you in uh, commerce. I want to encourage you, some of you in government. How many people work, for go work in government here? Okay. Well, they don't want to put their hands up. Okay. Someone has lifted, some, a couple of people have lifted their hands, but they're not lifting them that high. That's okay. Right. But very often you've got the technical know-how and what I want to bring in is the biblical perspective. And when you mix the two, it's amazing what ends up happening. This is an important issue to discuss because you see, when we talk about farming and agriculture, it is not just one industry. Often it's described as just one industry, but it's not one industry. Because when one farm breaks down and lies derelict, it actually affects the whole value chain. Because you see, farming is linked to technology. Farming is linked to roadworks. Farming is linked to uh, procurement, sales, marketing. And you know that the people in Canada are doing well at this. They actually realize that more and more young people are starting to see farming, the farming industry, as an industry to get into. Not necessarily as a farmer, but as someone who's doing marketing. Not necessarily as a farmer, but someone who's doing marketing, someone who's doing logistics, transport. And they're all going, youngsters in Canada are going into farming from that perspective. Imagine how many jobs can be created in this nation if we get things right concerning this sector. Amen? So in my rationale, I want to make a statement why this is important. Land can be polluted and defiled because of our actions. We want our land to be blessed. And we see this in Numbers 35, verse 33 to 34. It says, do not pollute the land where you are. You can pollute land. Do not pollute the land where you are. Blood, and then goes on to say, bloodshed pollutes the land. There are nations where there's been so much violence and the violence has polluted the land. That's what bloodshed does. 
It says, bloodshed pollutes the land and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Verse 34, do not defile the land. Land can be defiled. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. Can you see how it's actually very spiritual why the land of Israel is producing so much, yet scientifically and technically, it's not actually a great farming area? Can you see that there's a link between God blessing land and blessing a people and how much that land ends up producing? Amen. There's a spiritual dynamic to what we are talking about. We cannot have bloodshed, kill people, be racist, say this about this one, say that about that one, and then get onto our land and think that it will produce a lot. The land is polluted and the land is defiled because of how we are. Let me go into it this way. Our morality can actually end up affecting our agriculture. Our morality can influence our climate. I don't want to speak judgment over cities and so on, but there are certain cities in this nation that have thought we can live however we want to live. And, we, and they're proud of it. And they do things that scripture says are an abomination to the Lord. Then they experience drought and have to cry out to God, cry out to God, cry out to God. And God in his mercy comes through. But I'm telling you right now as a nation, our morality will affect the weather. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. I don't know about you, but when it comes to land reform, I would like to hear another story, a different story. I come from Zimbabwe. And I didn't hear too many stories in the land reform about this person who once was in deep poverty. Now, after a few years being a millionaire because of his great farming, after he was given Farm X, the stories I heard in my nation, sadly, were stories about politicians. Are you seeing where I'm going? Being the ones who now had five farms, 10 farms, 20 farms. Although they were already very wealthy people. Those are the stories I hear. I hear stories about guys taking over farms and the farm laborers on the farm still being in the same situation they were in before. In fact, worse. And the farm laborers saying, I would rather that white farmer who actually looked after us really well, I would rather they were the ones who were still here farming and not this guy who's hardly ever here who now has this land. Those are the stories I would keep hearing. And I want to preach this message because in this nation we need to be careful of neo-colonialism. Where the poor people end up getting poorer and then there's this person who comes in saying, I love you guys so much and I'll give you this and I'll give you this. And that person tends to say it more and more just before election time. I will give you this, I'll give you this. We didn't hear them saying it nine months ago. I will give you this because it's for you, it's for you, it's for you. And then after a couple of years, you like, who's actually scored in all of this? Ladies and gentlemen, history often repeats itself. History often repeats itself. And we've seen it happen many a time. So there needs to be accountability. You know, when people say like, oh yes, we'll give you land, we'll give you land. 
We'll give our people land. And I sit and I listen to it and I'm thinking, who's our people? Who? who? How, and how do you find who our people are? Scientifically, you can do land claim policy, which to some extent have worked, where you have evidence that these people were dispossessed of their land and they reclaim it and so on. Got no issues with that. But who's our people? Is it the guy whose dad jumped over the border from Mozambique and is now living in Pumalanga and has got a fake ID and speaks fluent, fluently in the vernacular? Is that our people who we want votes from? Who's our people? Because the way it's being spoken of right now, it's, it's very racialized. The way it's being spoken of right now, it's very much like if you've got black skin, you can get anything, any land you want. And the moment we articulate it that way, it becomes a land grab. Are you hearing me this morning? It becomes a land grab where I feel it's my right, because of the color of my skin, to get what I want to get. And if my cousins get it and I haven't, I'm like, no, it's not fair because these are my cousins. Why are they getting it and I'm not getting it? So I'm going to get mine. The Bible tells us that the heart of man is wicked above all else. It's deceitful. So the pattern I've seen with a lot of land redistribution, I've seen a lot of greed. Let's go a little bit deeper. This is just my rationale why we need to study this issue. Other thing is that the state of the land is a sign of our state with God. The state of the land is a sign of our state with God. In 2, Corinthians, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, it says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, it's one of the things we're struggling with right now in southern Africa, hey? There are certain, certain diseases that are attaching themselves to, um, to our crop, and there's a lot of crop failure, and the danger is you can't even see it sometimes. You can't actually see it. You know, sometimes you have these pests and these insects that you can actually see and you do something about it. My brother who's farming in Zim was actually telling me that some of the stuff, it's actually hidden. It's like deep down inside. Then you just realize, oh, everything is gone. Right? They're becoming, these superbugs are becoming resistant to a lot of our insecticides. And so we need stronger stuff. But I'm going to say it again. A lot of what we're experiencing agriculturally is very spiritual. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will do what to their land. I will heal their land. So land can be defiled, but land can also be healed. As Christians, there's a role we play to heal land. When you've got the locusts coming, when you've got the aphids and all these things coming through and destroying the land, when you experience drought, there's something we can do in the spirit that will affect the climate, that will affect our agricultural system. Amen. And I believe we can stand in the gap and do this. You see, this whole thing of land, it's also fairly close to my heart. Because I remember my grandparents, my grandfather was a teacher and he taught, um, it's in the middle part of Zimbabwe, in a place called Shurugui, near Gweru, okay? We're not from that area, but that's where he was teaching. 
right? But in 1953, he decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to my home area and I'm going to farm. And in Zimbabwe, there was a thing called, in the Shona word is Matenganyika, right? And these were purchased lands that the indigenous people could actually purchase. What had happened historically was that um, the, the colonial system, right? What they did was they said, okay, cool. Where's the nice, where are the nice farms and so on, nice farming areas? We'll put in commercial farmers there. And then uh, these other guys will put them in other places. Some of those places were good agriculturally, okay? Some of those places weren't. It wasn't all bad, okay? Some of those places weren't. And then what they did is they started a system where people could buy, okay? And they had title, right? They could purchase those places. Um, and it wasn't that expensive. They were able to purchase. And they started farming, and they created a farming culture where it was actually celebrated. And they spoke about a lot of the indigenous farmers as um, master farmers who would get certain awards. I remember growing up seeing pictures of my grandfather. The amount of produce was phenomenal, okay, that they were producing, and they'll get certain awards and so on. The point I'm making is even though it started off very badly. In the late 1880s, there was the Rudd Concession. Some of you remember that if you studied history, all right, where the guys duped Lobengula. Lobengula was one of the guys who moved up from this side, right? In, you know, the, what do they call it? Mfekani, Defekani, the different pronunciations. The Zulu Wars that happened. Shaka Zulu, the Zulu Wars, where they displaced. Everyone say displaced. Where they displaced people and the people moved up north. And some people have got a thing of it's only white people who displaced people. There were also black people displacing people. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? And these guys ended up based in Matebele land. Uh, some of them didn't get as far as that. Others went even further. Then what happened with the Raj concession was that uh, Lobangula was basically duped. Where these guys said, look, we want to have concession to land. So just put an X here. You know, just sign here and so on. And he didn't know what he was doing, but basically gave the colonialists the rights to actually, you know, get certain land. And in, in a sense, they then said, oh, the land belongs to the Queen of England. And these guys got farms basically via that way where the Queen was giving them land, which wasn't really hers in the first place. Okay, that's kind of like the history. And then later on, you found indig indigenous farmers were able to purchase some of that land, right? They purchased it and they began to farm. Right, just giving you a bit of background. But despite that, for some time, we respected title deed. We respected the fact that these guys purchased some of these farms in these areas. Okay? And for some time, it was purchased back during some of the reform. But when it's now without compensation, you open a door to the spirit of violence. And I'm going to explain that to you. You open the door to bloodshed, and we really need to pray for this nation with regards to that. Okay? Um, so let's go a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, deeper. So land can be healed. The state of land is not static. We have the power to change the state of the land. Where we are not producing crop, we can start producing. Our prayers can affect the destiny of our agriculture. So there's a strong spiritual and sacred dimension to land. And it's close to my heart. It's close to my heart. We're now in a situation in Zimbabwe where you are having the president, Mnangagwa, basically calling for people to come back, farmers to come back. So since 2000, since around late 1990s, you know, when the land grab really got hot in Zim, right, up until now, 
They've seen that it's affected the economy of a whole nation badly. Because central to agriculture is food security that's needed in a nation. Food security. And so what ended up happening is that now the president of Zim is saying, guys, come back. We need your expertise. You guys in Australia, come back. You guys in Zambia, come back. I was speaking to a guy uh, a few months ago, white Zimbabwean farmer based now in the Eastern Cape. And he says, yeah, the guys are calling me back. But Paul, I don't think I'm going to go back because what am I going to go back to? Because farming is not just about the land. Farming is also about the equipment and the infrastructure and their costs in terms of the production, the input costs. Are you hearing me this morning? If you get land that has been given to you, right? Someone gives you land. I'm telling you right now, that very person who's given it to you can also take it away. In this nation, if we don't respect title and ownership of private property, which is the foundation of law in a nation, we'll have problems. Right now in Zimbabwe, we're in a situation where I remember speaking to a friend of mine who's working in a corporate organization there, a leader there, quite high up. But through the land redistribution, her dad managed to get a farm. But her dad is now in Australia. Okay? And she's under pressure. She's saying, oh, the president has told us if we're not farming the land and we're not producing, we'll have problems. The land can be taken from us. Someone else will, will use it. Are you seeing where I'm going? There's an obligation we have to be productive with what we've been blessed with. Amen. So people are under pressure today. One of, the, one of the reasons why land reform has failed in this nation is originally when it took place, it was the emphasis was on settlement. So the emphasis was, guys, cool, here's land for you and you can settle on it. Now they're catching on to what I'm preaching about now, that you should actually give people, make them obliged to do something with the land. When you're given land, there's an obligation you have to feed a nation. Otherwise, the nation struggles when it comes to food security. Okay? There's a friend of ours, an old friend of ours, who was farming in an area called Bindura, great farmland in Zimbabwe. And what happened was that he started teaching people how to farm God's way. And that method of farming went all over the world. And what I found interesting was that he actually started giving away pieces of his land to his workers and people who were already there. He was giving them, with, and the idea was gradually, as I'm training you guys in farming, you'll end up taking over. Despite the fact that he was taking them through that process, his farm was still taken. We need to pray against the spirit of greed because you'll find a situation where there is a good farmer who's got farmland, who's willing to actually share it, which I think is the biblical route to go, to share that particular land and to help people so that they're good stewards of that particular land. But mark my words, you will still see people who are greedy politicians in this nation saying, oh, this is nice land for me, let me get it. And then they get it, but they don't know how to use it. And they must be made accountable for that. Amen. Another piece in my rationale, why we need to speak on this matter, is that what took place generations ago can have its effects altered 
by identificational repentance. Things that happened years ago, we can break the power of that through identificational repentance. What is identificational repentance? I'll show it to you. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40 to 42, the Bible says, But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant. But what does it say we have to do? It says, if they confess their sins and, their, and the sins of their ancestors. So we can't just say, well, I'm not them. Well, I'm not the one who did it. I'm not the one who violently took over land. Or I'm not the one who um, uh, practiced witchcraft on that land and now the land is defiled. It wasn't me, it was my ancestors. There's identificational repentance in scripture where we say, God, me and my people, we have sinned against you. We renounce what we have done. Forgive us. We draw a line in the sand so that our children and our children's children will not be affected by our sin. God gives us the power to stand in the gap. He's not saying that your children automatically are cursed. He's saying that you've got the power to turn it around. But it says here in scripture, if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And sometimes we like to make our ancestors seem like they were perfect. People who didn't necessarily know Jesus. People where when you hear the real stories, you realize, oh, there were issues here. What's written in the history books isn't always accurate. I was speaking to a guy who I'm coaching who's an expert in Zulu history. And this, I mean, this guy is working in a, in a banking industry and so on, but he's an expert in Zulu history and he actually does plays around it. And he said to me, the most accurate source of, his, of Zulu history is actually through the poets, the people who were the king's poets. Because the king's poets were the ones in a literal way uh, and in a very poetic way, they were the only people who were allowed to talk not just about the strengths of the king, but also the weaknesses and the mistakes the kings made. So when you actually start studying that history, you then see it coming out that, oh, there was this, oh, there was this mistake, there was that mistake. We need to look at not just the strengths of our ancestors, but we need to also look at the weaknesses and then be able to say, God, this is where we messed up. God, forgive us. Instead of just taking the portion of history that makes us feel like we are heroes. That forgets about the bloodshed. That forgets about all those other things. And, and just points to the colonialists only. Yeah, they did this. They did this. Well, what did you do to other tribes? Are you hearing me this morning? We need to address these things on the continent. And I'm tired of pastors being put into a corner. Where it's like, oh no, just preach. No, you guys just stick to. Just tell people how to have their devotions. That's the spiritual world. Don't get involved in that. Are you saying that God is limited to this world? That's why I did the book Business God's Way. Because he's got so much to talk about in terms of different arenas. Amen? Amen. So the consequences are clear. The consequences are clear. There's someone called Crazy uh, Uyedzwa. And she, she wrote something I found interesting just about the situation in Zim. She said, those who were given land 
due to lack of knowledge, resources, and the desire to utilize it, have failed to produce enough food for the nation. Not all of them, but some. Others who also benefited from the chaotic land reform program only did so for speculative purposes and are holding on to vast tracts of idle land. And by the way, even Robert Mugabe, the former president, seems funny saying it like that, the former president, Robert Mugabe, he even acknowledges it. He says that we made a mistake by putting people on land who were inexperienced in actual farming. He actually acknowledges it. Okay? I'm not too sure at what point he acknowledged it. All right? <laughs> then she goes on to say, others who also benefited from the chaotic land reform program only did so for speculative purposes and are holding on to vast tracts of idle land. The country last year produced only 65 million liters of milk against annual requirements of 120 million liters. This is the same country that used to produce about 300 million liters of milk back in the 1990s. So let's not con ourselves and say, but we're doing well because we are black people doing it now. So we are great and we are perfect. No, we're not. This is the same country that used to produce about 300 million liters of milk back in the 1990s before the dairy herd was destroyed after land reform. There's a guy I was at school with, he was a few years ahead of me, and he now heads up ADA in Zim, that's the Agricultural and Rural Development Authority. And he says, we have, lot, we have a lot of capital resources dotted around the world, including Australia, and we are saying all of them must come back, talking about people with expertise, all of them must come back and start the agricultural business on a fresh page. Clearly the formulas deployed then left a lot of bad feeling, and more importantly, the intellectual property left our borders. If we want to really embrace diversity in this nation, we have to be inclusive, but not inclusive just to a sector or just to certain people. You know, sometimes people talk about inclusivity, but they're really talking about, yeah, as long as I'm included and my people are included, then that's inclusivity. Amen? We don't want to lose our intellectual capital. And a lot of people are leaving the country right now. And people who are just thinking of me and my family and my job, they don't care about it. But after five years, you'll start seeing the impact. And you'll say, I've got no one to mentor me in how to use that farming, uh, that machinery. Because they've all gone. And you'll experience what we experienced in Zim, where all the great farmers were now in Zambia and now in all these other places. Let me just say something very quick about land. Do you know that a lot of the land in this nation is actually owned by government? A lot of the land, if you go and look at the stats, a lot of the land in this nation is owned by government, parastatals, and big commercial companies. And of course, then you have a portion of that that's owned by white farmers. And I find it interesting that people keep talking about the white farmers, the white farmers, the white farmers, but I'm not hearing enough coming from government saying, this is government land, but we're now going to parcel it out to certain people. Are you hearing me? The government needs to actually model what it's talking about. And you know what's scary for me? If you look at the stats in South Africa and you compare them to countries like Canada, and the way Canada is doing farming right now is a good blueprint for other countries. 98% of the farming land in Canada is owned by individuals 
who are actually farming and operating them. Individual families that are not just farming from a distance, farming and operating them, 98%. Are you seeing where I'm going? Okay. Another portion in my rationale, there's a guy called uh, Pumlani Majosi. I think some of you might know him. He's a presenter, does a lot of stuff, um, does stuff for State of Africa and so on, interviews people. Love what he says. He says, my view has always been that whatever land reform policy we pursue, and we must pursue one, it must guarantee that private property rights are protected and that it only and only addresses the needs of those previously neg negatively affected by land policies of the apartheid era, regardless of their color. So it's not racialized. And he says, and trust me, the majority of those beneficiaries will automatically be black because the majority of South Africans are black. And the majority of those who were dispossessed of land before 1994 are likely to be black. The notion that black poor people will prosper from expropriation of land without compensation is so deceptive that I wonder why people believe it. The policy is about politicians and their hunger for political power. If the government is serious about helping the landless poor, then its first step must be to hand over the land it owns to the poor. While in the process, it is educating and upskilling citizens so they earn higher income to afford to buy land for themselves and their money. And that's his perspective, okay? So there's a case for land reform. Land is, there's a, there's a commissioned report on land redistribution by Kepe and Hall in 2016. And what they said was, land is the most basic need for rural dwellers. Apartheid policies pushed millions of black South Africans into overcrowded and impoverished reserves, homelands and townships. In addition, capital-intensive agricultural policies led to the large-scale eviction of farm dwellers from their land and homes. Only a tiny minority of black people can afford land on the free market. Okay? And, and, and hence the case for land reform. But I'm telling you right now, how we do it is going to be crucial. How we do it is going to be crucial. You see, I'm passionate about this partly because my wife actually had a vision. And in a vision, she saw a particular horse of a particular color. And what happens in scripture when you understand this is that um, if you see that type of vision, it actually speaks of famine in the land. And as we prayed about this and sought the Lord, we're saying, Lord, there's this land reform that's about to happen. We're seeing this vision of famine. What are you saying? And I believe the enemy's strategy in this nation right now is to bring about so much discord, hatred, and even violence that will result in famine in the land. That's the enemy's agenda. As we build our nation and as we reform our nation, it's important to redress the status quo. And so there's some key questions that we need to answer. There's a guy called Max Dupree, and he says something interesting. He said that the burning land question is actually not a land question. It is more about symbolism, history, and inequality, rather than about land to live on and farm on. So there's a symbolism in all of this. And you'll find some people symbolically will feel like, cool, I now have my land. And that's where it will end. 
Not everyone is passionate about producing and being productive on the land. It's symbolic. What are we going to do when that happens? We need to be prepared for it. So I now want to start asking you very specific questions. Done my rationale, and I think you're in agreement with me that we need to talk about this issue. Question number one, is your heart attitude right? Is your heart attitude right? What's the heart attitude of the believer? Are you willing to forgive or are you going to play God? Do you remember what happened in Genesis with Joseph? His brothers came and they thought that he will be against them and he will punish them because they'd sold him into slavery. Imagine you have a brother who does that to you. And look what Joseph did. Genesis chapter 50 from verse 15 to 21. I'm going to read from verse 18. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Ladies and gentlemen, in this region, we must be careful of playing God. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? You guys intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph was interested in the nation, not himself. Joseph's interest was in the salvation of a nation from famine. He says in verse 21, so then don't be afraid I will provide for you and your children. These are the people who had harmed him, who had sold him into slavery. Joseph's heart attitude is, I'll provide for you and for your children. Do not be afraid. Do you know what our message should be? Those who've harmed us, those who oppressed us, our heart attitude should be, don't be afraid. The moment you have a large group in a nation full of fear, you know what happens? And I think I said this last week. You walk into a guy's house or into his property, maybe a ball has gone into his property and you want to pick, him up, pick it up or something and the guy will take out his gun and will shoot you because of fear. And there are many people in this nation that are paralyzed by fear. Paranoia. And then it says, and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The very people that had sold him into slavery. If your brother sold you into slavery today, what would you do? What would you do to them? You see, this issue of land reform is so important because our heart and our attitude when it comes to land reform will affect our heart and our attitude when it comes to BEE, tenders, and all these other things, education, etc. Land reform is a type. And when we get that right, it affects everything else because of the symbolic value of it. Are you willing to forgive or are you going to play God? Often when we don't forgive, it means that we don't trust that God is ultimately our source. Telling you right now, you can take matters into your own hands, but still not prosper. Is your heart attitude right? And what I want to do at this point is I want to show you a clip for a few minutes. And this clip is um, a clip about Ruby Bridges. How many of you know Ruby Bridges? Ruby Bridges in 1960... She was the first in a particular area, first African-American lady to go to an integrated school. Because remember in the States, the civil rights movement and so on, right? So black people would go to their schools and white people would go to their schools. But I want you to see what her heart attitude was like 
and is like today, because she's an activist today, what it's like towards those that wronged her and the empathy she had towards them. And I think it's very powerful. When we turned the corner, I saw all of these people. November 14, 1960. It was six-year-old Ruby Bridges' first day of school at William France Elementary in New Orleans. I remember them chanting, two, four, six, eight, we don't want to integrate. It had been five years since the U.S. Supreme Court mandated the desegregation of schools. Now Washington was putting pressure on Louisiana and other states that had yet to comply. In a veiled attempt to appear compliant, city officials in New Orleans gave 150 black kindergartners an entrance exam, one they had no chance of passing. But six of the 150 passed that test. Ruby was one of them. Everybody was coming over and congratulating my parents. She's so smart, she passed, we're so proud of her. So I actually thought that I was so smart that I passed this test that would allow me to go from first grade to college. Three girls, including Ruby, were selected to attend William France Elementary. But by the first day, the other two girls had dropped out, making Ruby the only black student in the school. My parents only said, Ruby, you're going to go to a new school today, and you better behave. There was a knock at the door. My parents opened the door and four very tall white men were standing at the door. And I remember looking at them and thinking, well, who are they? Those four men were United States Marshals sent under order of President Eisenhower. Their job was to escort Ruby to and from school. One of the men was Charles Burks. Well, we had a lot of demonstrations against what we were doing. The main thing was just be sure nothing happened to her. So we'd tell her, just stay close to us. We'll be all right. There were barricades everywhere. There were cameras everywhere. I thought I'd stumbled into a parade. I actually thought it was Mardi Gras. It didn't seem to bother her any. She was just doing what she had been told to do. Ruby's mother went as well. Once inside, they were taken to the principal's office where they stayed all day. There, they watched white parents scramble in and out of classrooms, taking their children out of school. 500 kids walked out of school that day. And I didn't know what was going on because nobody explained anything to me. Finally, the bell rang and someone came into the office and they said, school is dismissed. You can leave. And I remember sitting there and thinking, wow, college is easy. <laughs> By the next day, the crowds had doubled. And they kept pointing at me and shouting. They kept saying, we're going to poison her. We're going to hang her. I was in favor of what we were doing. I knew what we were doing was right. And we were going to make sure it happened. This time, Ruby was taken to a classroom. I remember looking into that classroom, and all I saw was empty desk. I didn't see one child. But there was one person there, her teacher, Barbara Henry. Coming from Boston, she was the only one willing to teach Ruby. I remember looking at her and thinking, she's white. I'd never seen a white teacher before. 
She looked exactly like the people outside. She wasn't. I always say that she showed me her heart. The following week, students started to return. But the principal confined Ruby to her classroom and didn't allow her to play outside or eat in the cafeteria. I remember going to the back of the classroom to sharpen my pencil, and you could look onto the playground. There was these huge oak trees, swings and slides and basketball goals. And I kept thinking as I sharpened my pencil, where are the kids? By the end of the school year, the protests had disbanded, and Ruby was finally allowed to meet the other children. I finally found them, you know, and I was so excited. So I went in to play with them. Uh, this little boy looked at me and he said, I can't play with you. My mom said not to play with you because you're a nigger. So that's what this is about. It's not Mighty Gras. And this isn't college. It's about me. It's about me and the way I look and the color of my skin. And in my mind, that was okay. Yes, he hurt my feelings, but I wasn't angry with him because I felt like he was explaining to me why he couldn't play with me. If my parents said, Ruby, don't play with him, he's Asian, Hispanic, Indian, Muslim, white, mixed race, Jewish, gay. I would not have played with him. I didn't feel like there was anything for me to forgive. The fact that in my mind, he was explaining to me and that I would have done the same thing. It wasn't like I was angry with him. So there was nothing there to forgive. The fact that when I passed the crowd, I thought it was Mardi Gras. There was nothing there for me to forgive. Ruby returned the following year. She had a new teacher and a room full of classmates. She went on to attend an integrated high school and eventually graduated from Kansas City Business School with a degree in travel and tourism. And when she married and began raising a family, she taught her children to rely on God. She always falls on her faith and she makes sure that you do so as well. So it doesn't matter what you go through, doesn't matter who hates you, who dislikes you. As long as you have that faith and that relationship with God, you're fine. Ruby returned to William France Elementary in 1993 when she enrolled her four nieces. She witnessed the same racism she had seen as a little girl. So to build bridges between the races, she volunteered as a parent liaison and established an after-school multicultural art club. Soon after, she launched the Ruby Bridges Foundation and began sharing her story with students all over the U.S. I see hope that most of us don't see. I'm in schools every day. I am so humbled by the way my story moves kids. It's so simple. How Mrs. Henry didn't judge me how all I wanted was a friend. Kids get that, they understand that. Our kids 
know nothing about racism. It's us as adults. We take racism and we pass it on to our kids. And that's why it's still around. Each and every one of us come into the world with a clean heart. I believe that if we are going to get past our racial differences, even today, it's gonna to come from our kids. It's been over 55 years since Ruby walked up those steps and took her place in history. Today, her legacy continues to make a difference. I was happy to see what she did because I knew it could be done. I've always told Ruby that, and I'm glad I was there, able to have something to do with it. To have equality, it takes someone with courage to make that change so that we can come together. And you have to have a, a great, faithful foundation to stand up for something that you truly believe. My superhero, she does that every day. Out of the commandments, if you could only keep one, the one you should keep is love thy neighbor. That is the key. And I have to care about you as a person and a human being. I really believe the longer I live that it really has everything to do with love. So we need to have a culture of forgiveness, a culture of love as the foundation of whatever we want to do in this nation. If we continue in hatred, hate speech and all this stuff, it won't work and we won't prosper. Amen. I'm going to share two more points and then land this. The second question I want to ask you is, are you creating the culture you want? Culture can be created. Culture can be created. If you want to create a culture of diversity, of inclusivity, there's certain things you do. Culture is created by what you teach. If we want a culture of diversity, we have to teach it to our children. Culture is created by what you model. If you want a culture of love, non-racialism, we have to model that to our children. Amen? And to the next generation. Everyone look at me. Look at me just quickly, I don't mind, I promise you. Okay, everyone touch your cheek. So many of you are touching your chin, aren't you? Why are you touching your chin and not your cheek? It's because you can see me touching my chin, right? And that's what happens in life. Your children will do what they see you model. They won't just do what you say. Someone once said, consciously I teach what I know. Unconsciously I pass on who I am. We'll, we pass things on to our children. If we want to create a culture of diversity, we must teach it, we must model it. We must have rituals around it. We must measure it. We must inspect it. We must reward it. We must celebrate it. That's how you create culture. Culture is also created by how leaders react in times of crisis. Where do they go? They can say one thing to us, the politicians today, but when it's a crisis moment and they're desperate for votes, what do they do? 
That's the culture that is created. So we need to create a culture of diversity. And then my third and final point for the day, do you have a steward mi stewardship mindset? Do you have a stewardship mindset? What is stewardship? Stewardship is when you are taking care of something that's not yours. The narrative today in this nation is a narrative of this is mine, it's not yours. It's not a narrative of stewardship. Look in scripture. Look at how the is Israelites and the Jewish people saw their land. In the book of Psalms 24 verse 1, it says, The earth is? The earth is whose? The earth is whose? The earth is whose? The earth is the Lord's. And all it contains, it belongs to God. The world and those who dwell in it. It's the Lord's. And we are stewards. So when I get land, when I, when I'm, when I own something, I have title to it. I must know that I'm a steward. And as I'm faithful with the little that God gives me, he will bless me with more to the degree to which I've been a good steward of what he's given me. Those of you who are farming today, how well are you using the land God has given you? How many of you are farmers? How many of you farm? How many of you have got land? Okay. I know, I know there's some people who don't want to put up their hands, but I know you've got land. Okay. Because I know your story. I knows you. Right? <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 10 verse 26. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So that was not just an Old Testament thing. It was quoted in the New Testament. Look at Genesis 2 verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him away into the garden of Eden. Eden was a garden. So when did farming begin? What is the first thing God had to deal with? Well, the first industry. Yes. If you like gardening. But <laughs> gardening is a form of farming. Right? It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. He didn't put him in the garden to just chill. And a lot of people are just chilling on land, not doing anything with it. It says to cultivate it and keep it. When you own land, you have an obligation to be fa a faithful steward of it. And then Genesis 12, verse 6 to 7. Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Who's giving it? God. Then it then says, So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He was a steward of that land. God can give you land that was once inhabited by others. That what that's what actually happened to Abraham. All right. So we're going to pray. We're going to pray. And the first group of people I want to pray for this morning is you might be here and you're in a situation where you're saying, but you know what, Paul? I want to get into farming, but I want to do it with the right heart. There's going to be more land made available and more people interested in farming. There is, for whatever reason. But if you're here and you're saying, I want to do it God's way. I want to be generous to the people who are on the land. I'm going to show you next week's scriptures around that. I want to get the mentorship I need and I want to partner effectively with people who are more clued up than I am. 
I believe that God wants to do something very precious in this church around this thing of farming. But we want to do it God's way. Maybe you're here and you're saying, Paul, you know what? Even if I just get a few hectares, I want to produce just like the Israelites are doing. Just like some of the people in these small nations are producing with what they're given. I want to model God's way of doing it. I don't want to be full of greed. I don't want to do it if it's illegitimate. I'm going to show you next week what happens to people who take land illegitimately. If you're here and you've had an interest in this sphere, just stand up where you are. Maybe you're currently farming or you want to. Believe there's something God wants to unlock. Remember I told you that farming and land is very, very spiritual. It's very, very spiritual. There's an anointing for it. There's a grace for it. That's why you'll find you can have two farmers next door to each other. And it's raining on the one farm. It's not raining on the other. And this one has got a bumper harvest and this one hasn't. There's a grace right now being released for this. There's a grace right now being released and activated for this. It's about stewardship. Some of you are sitting on big plots, but you're not doing anything with it. You could be doing horticulture. Right now, in the mighty name of Jesus, Lord, we yield ourselves to you. And we say that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Lord, we receive this anointing and this activation to be good stewards of whatever land we have. Whatever land we've bought, whatever land we're going to buy. Father God, I pray for my brothers and my sisters right now. And I speak an activation. Some of you here, you're not standing up, but in your family, there's farmland. And your siblings are not using it properly. And you're saying, if only I could operate it, I would take it to another level. Just stand where you are. It might not be you, but you've got solutions. You've got access to it. In the name of Jesus, we activate this thing, almighty God. And I thank you that your people will prosper. There'll be kingdom financiers here raised up because of how they are using land. I pray that they would be a voice and they would be modeling how, it, how things are supposed to be done. I speak blessing over them as they have stood in agreement with this prayer. And I thank you, God, that you're going to show them what the next steps are. Prosper them, Father God. Show them the whole value chain. And let this be a blessing to them, to their children and their children's children. And give them a vision for the nation. A heart to feed the nation. In the mighty name of Jesus. And the people of God said, Amen.